0: You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by SugarWish. SugarWish is an online gifting site that provides a delightful gift experience followed by delicious treats. They get to choose delivered directly to their door here's how it works. A sugar wish can be sent to anybody. So if you're the recipient, you open up an email and it says someone has sent you a sugar wish. And you open it up, you click, and it says pick any four of these delicious candies um, to fill your basket. So you get to look through everything from gummy worms and M&Ms and Skittles and jelly beans and everything. Um, And you click and then check out and it's sent to you in this beautiful box with all these candies inside and a ribbon. And it's just beautifully packaged and sent right to your door. And so, somebody basically, you get to customize your own gift. And it's really awesome. And I did this and I sent them to my son at boarding school. And we got some here for Halloween. And I highly, highly recommend uh, this company. Um, definitely go check it out, sugarwish.com. Sarah Seeger is a Canadian American astronomer and planetary scientist. She's a professor at MIT known for her work on extrasolar planets in their atmosphere. She's the author of two textbooks on these topics and has been recognized for her research by Popular Science, Discover Magazine, Nature, and Time Magazine. She was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship in 2013, citing her theoretical work on detecting chemical signatures on exoplanet atmospheres and developing low-cost space observatories to observe planetary transits. I really don't know what any of that means, but obviously she's super impressive. A graduate of the University of Toronto with a PhD from Harvard, she is also the author of memoir The Smallest Lights in the Universe, a memoir called A Luminous Memoir about how she had to reinvent herself in the wake of tragedy and discovered the power of connection on this planet as she searches our galaxy for another Earth. Well, welcome. I'm so honored to be interviewing you today for Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: No, it's my pleasure. The Smallest Lights in the Universe is perhaps one of my favorite books I've read recently. It is so good. And the parallel lines of the basically the space race with your own grief are just, it's just amazing. So I just wanted to let you know how powerful I thought it was.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that.
0: So for listeners who don't know what The Smallest Lights in the Universe is about, would you mind telling them what it's about? And then what inspired you to write
1: this memoir? The Smallest Lights in the Universe is about the journey of exploring outer space, but also the journey of exploring inner space. By outer space, I mean the stars. And I hope you have a chance to look up at the dark. Night sky filled with stars because each one of those stars is a sun, and we have evidence that each of them have planets. We're looking for another planet like Earth, one that might have life on it. And the journey of inner space is, by the way, I just wanted to capture in the book that science is truly a journey of exploration. Just like the people who first went to the North Pole or to Antarctica and the South Pole, we are trying to push the frontiers of exploration. But you know, all of us in our everyday life, often eventually get to some kind of crisis and in my case this was a death in my nuclear family of my first husband and it was like falling it was like hiking in the outdoors and imagining falling off a cliff where at the bottom you're just broken and isolated and it feels like an incredible journey to have to make it back out of that lonely canyon. And so in my book, I I interweave both of those stories. And my goal is to just show people what science is like and how we can try to inspire ourselves to do big things.
0: So you're one of the most preeminent astrophysicists and have just really blown the records off of so many things, discovered new things, achieved things throughout the course of your career. Now, why a memoir, too? Like why, and when, having read your story, so I know how busy your life is, when did you find time to do this?
1: Well, the whole thing started actually when my first husband died, which I can talk about now without being really upset about it because it was almost a decade ago. But when I was going through this journey, like this incredible journey of inner exploration, I just was like, wow, why haven't I, I haven't read about this or seen about it. And I was so lucky to meet another group of moms, widows, and I asked them, like, well, aren't you writing a book about this? Because it seemed like something the world should know about. So that was partly my motivation. And, yeah, you know, it's funny because they say busy people can get more done. And one time, I, it's, it's sort of like in my field, people are allowed to take a sabbatical. Like every six years or so, you take some time off your everyday busyness. And repeatedly, those folks get less done on their own personal private work. So I did have to squeeze things mm-hmm. in on, like, evenings and weekends. And it was definitely tough. Wow. I'm
0: very, very impressed. (laughs) You're writing on grief. Would you mind if I just read you this excerpt and maybe you could comment on it? Because I just thought it has stayed with me so much. You write, everybody dies instantly. It's the dying that happens either quickly or over a long period of time. Then you go on and you say, I understand intellectually the need for the distinction between, you know, dying and the instancy, but a car accident and cancer are two different strains of death. It's the difference between dying as a whole all at once and dying piece by lost piece. Then you say, either way, the building, and I'm jumping around two pages because it's also good. Either way, the buildings end up gone, but the way it vanishes isn't the same. And we need a word to make clear the difference in process. It still felt to me as though Mike died instantly. Yes, we knew his death was coming. We could get his affairs in order, whatever hollow comfort that is supposed to bring. as though the most important thing when you die is that you die with a tidy desk. And then you say the dying time that Mike and I shared didn't make his death any less of a horror and it didn't make my loss feel any less sudden. Mike took a breath and then he didn't. He was alive and then he wasn't. In one moment, I was a wife. In the next, I was a widow. That is so powerful. <laughs> That's amazing. So anyway, thank you. tell me a little more about about that difference and how it felt in that moment and, and the, this distinction that people tend to make as if the dying slowly will somehow blunt the trauma of having someone you love suddenly die.
1: I know now. I do feel like crying. So I'm it's, sorry. Um, it's okay. Well, what happened was he was, you know, diagnosed with cancer, and he became terminally ill pretty quickly because the chemo didn't work. And he definitely went on this downward slide where eventually he was bedridden. We wanted both wanted him to die at home, so we had set up like a hospital bed, and we had home hospice and it was all very helpful but he was just hanging on like there's like you wouldn't believe it and his home hospice nurse Jerry had explained to me like what would happen and what to look for and Jerry would come back like day after day week after week and go wow you know we haven't seen like a 40 year old man do this before it's only the 20 year old who have a brain tumor whose body is so strong they'll hang on So I took care of Mike and I was just kind of waiting for him to die because he was basically dead. Like he couldn't communicate and I was just taking care of him, helping him on that like final journey. And I honestly expected that I had come to terms with his death already because of those extended days and, you know, few weeks when he should have already been dead. He was just hanging on somehow. But then after he died, you know, except for like a short period of relief, my life just fell apart. I'm so sorry. And I'm so sorry for your loss. And it's such, a, it's such a gift for you to be sharing it in this way, really. But you know, one thing that I tried to convey in the book, I'm not wanting people to have <laughs> loss at this level, but sometimes a catastrophe can lead to new beautiful things. Like, think about this, okay, The like in the sort of spirit of mixing science with personal, when the dinosaurs became extinct, we think like a giant meteorite hit earth and just destroyed not only the dinosaurs' life, but lots of other species, you know, by creating just pure chaos in our atmosphere and enabling volcanoes to spew out ash and like everything became darker and probably a lot colder. Well, because of the dinosaurs dying out, new life could flourish, including what led to us humans being able to rise on our planet. And so although as sad as my loss was with Mike, it definitely gave me new opportunities.
0: That's a very healthy way of looking at it. You know, it's also, there's the difference between what you know intellectually and then the feelings that you have when you're going through it. You know it might lead to something good, but in the moment, you know, as you you described so well, you know, it's hard to internalize. I'll just read one more quote on the grief. You wrote, "'The tears ran down my face in steady streams. I knew intellectually that the widows were right. I needed to make forward progress. I couldn't spend the rest of my life drowning in grief. I had to kick my way back to shore.' But when you lose someone, you don't lose them all at once. And their dying doesn't stop with their death. You lose them a thousand times in a thousand ways. You say a thousand goodbyes. You hold a thousand funerals. Oh, now I'm crying. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, this book. Tell me a little more about that passage.
1: Well, as you go through grief and life starts to rebuild, there are sometimes constantly, other times occasionally, like striking reminders that you've lost your loved one. She was sort of going along, you know, I was taking my kids somewhere to stay overnight, still really depressed back then, and just seeing like the happy families. Or, you know, going to take my two boys to soccer, where it's all coached by mostly soccer dads, and just seeing all these healthy dads like supporting the boys. You just feel the loss all over again, again and again.
0: I wish there was some way to make sure that didn't happen. But, you know, I think that's part of why grief is so unpredictable because it comes and you know, clocks you on the head when you are least expecting it. Like, even if you're having a good day and then something happens. so. So true. And The Widows of Concord, I felt like that could have been a name for a book as well, The Widows of Concord. <laughs> right. It's just such such a perfect thing. And that I loved how your sons got so into it that at one point when you started dating, one of your sons said, no, you can't get married again because then then we'll be out of the group, you know, the widow's group.
1: <laughs> right, right, right.
0: So I know you touched on this earlier, but tell me just a little more about the power of, of getting involved in a group like this. And I know you were so initially resistant, thinking everybody was so much, you know, in much better shape shape and all the rest, but the power of being with people in a similar spot. Tell me how that works for
1: you. Well, it was just an incredible experience. Honestly, when I talked about how death could give rise to beautiful things, this small group of women in my town, my town only has about 20,000 people, but there were six. And then we had one woman from a neighboring town. And what was amazing is that at least for the first couple of years, our mindsets were all so similar. I mean, admittedly we're of the same kind of demographic, but And we all had kids ranging in age from about four years old to 13 at the time. And it was amazing with these women because they didn't judge. And no matter what our differences were, our widowhood, our fresh grief was so common that it brought us together. And the widows were so funny. You don't really associate humor with grief, but you kind of have to counterbalance the huge depths of despair And these women had like a shocking sense of dark humor. The stuff we joke about, sometimes we were in situations where there'd be other people who weren't widows, and you should have seen the way they looked at us, joking (laughs) and and everything. And yeah, so we got together really regularly on the so-called, quote, important holidays, like Father's Day, (laughs) Halloween, Valentine's Day. And then we'd meet for coffee where, you know, our first topic would be how to stay afloat financially. I was the only working widow at the time. But it's still tough, actually. And then the second topic was equally treacherous was on dating <laughs> because, you know, you've got a lot of baggage. Well, a lot of any single person at that age usually has some baggage, but I feel like we had more heavy baggage. Wow. Well, I love the- the continuous proof that there are beautiful things that come
0: out of this and your friendships. I know you wrote a lot in the book about your difficulty sort of finding your, your crew basically in the past and how you were sort of almost relationship averse, that it was like a fluke that you (laughs) kind of fell in love with your husband and that you could connect in that way. Do you feel like now this has opened you up to all new kinds of friendships or are you just like committed to your widow's group and, and that's kind of it? Yeah, well, I mean
1: oddly enough, the widow's group kind of dispersed because we had a lot in common for the first couple of years, but we all kind of went back to our new normal. Mm. You know, so the mom whose kids are in college now, they they're kind of like doing different things than those of us who still have kids in in high school and people seem to get busy with their own hobbies. But ironically, we started meeting again. They had a Kind of socially distance outdoor book party for me, and I gave each each widow a copy of the book, and we had. And now we're gonna well we're release planning to start meeting regularly again, but we'll, we'll see how those go. So I'm, I'm I try to be open to new experiences. That's
0: amazing, and let's talk a little bit about your really like unbelievable and inspiring career because I had never really read anything about what it's like in this industry and especially as a woman in this industry and all the discoveries and how people sort of doubted your research at first and yet you kept at it and your HuffPost article when you were pointing out to people who didn't realize it that the demands of having to meet say quarterly in person is really tough for a working mom who lives across the country. So just tell me a little more about how you keep finding the resilience to like And the confidence, I guess, to just keep plunging forward into literally the biggest unknown there could possibly be in the universe and not letting the naysayers and the setbacks throw you off course.
1: Well, there's a few different things. One is I've always loved exploring. You know, when I was younger, I, would, I grew up in Canada where canoeing is a thing. You know, we don't have mountains in eastern Canada. So you're, if you're going to take up an outdoor sport, it's going to be something other than mountain climbing. And, you know, we would go canoeing and do big adventurous trips in the north of Canada. And so I always feel like science has that same spirit of, wow, wanting to do something new. But I'm the type of person, like, don't you hate it when you want to do something new? Like whether it's small or big. And someone says, oh, you're never going to be able to do that. Like, has that happened to you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. How does, that, how does that make you feel?
0: Actually, it happened with this podcast. There you go. There
1: you go. And does it yeah. make you feel like like angry, like I'm going to do it. I don't care what you say. Yeah.
0: Like yes. to, to spite them. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Yeah. It's like, well, watch me go.
1: <laughs> so it kind of just fuels the fire if someone says, no, I don't think that's a good idea. So yeah, I think a lot of people share that feeling. And finally, I do have like a specific <laughs> kind of visualization tool to do this because I, and I do share this with women, like younger women I work with. Like it's very common in my field to have the imposter syndrome, you know, where you think you don't belong you don't have belief in yourself. And what I tell them, I also do myself, but I try to focus on viscerally, like on my past accomplishments to give myself that confidence, that inner confidence that I can succeed at anything. Cause you know, how many times as women or moms or whatever, are we always kicking ourselves or berating ourselves or just saying, you know, I could have done that better. And how many times do you say, you know, this is what I tell my kids, I did the best job I could with the skills I have. And then how many times do we say, wow, wow, I did a great job. Like never, right? I mean, not very. (laughs) We have to like spend, we should be spending as much time or more, right? Being proud or being complimentary to ourselves as being hard on ourselves. And I feel like doing those things consciously really helps me reach my goals.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Someone who had helped me do something asked afterwards how it had gone. And I said, I typed like in a text, I did a really good job. And then I like sat there with the phone in my hand and the cursor blinking being like, should I delete that? That sounds terrible. And then I was like, well, I don't know. I, I feel like I did do a good job. And I like want to thank this person and let them know that I didn't let them down. So I don't know. But yeah, there's all this inner critic not allowing ourselves to say that things went well. And you're right. I mean, how how much better off would we be if if our inner voices were constantly encouraging rather than
1: discouraging us. I really really think that's important. Like as a mom, I know my kids wanted, okay, so I don't know how it's going to sound good or bad, but like my kids wanted to be more nurturing. And one of them would always say, mom, you know, moms make chocolate chip cookies and moms do this and moms do that. And, you know, instead of feeling bad, I would just say, no, well, I don't do that. But you know what? Even though I don't make cookies, we do all these other things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just, it is praising ourselves, but it's also sort of you know, not beating ourselves up for something that isn't who we are. That's true.
0: And that's such a good idea to show that to the kids, right? Like, because otherwise they'll think they can do everything. Right. You know what I mean, like it's impossible. So why set them up for failure? <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> like one time this big tree branch had fallen on our garage and I had to get rid of it. I remember my kids expressing doubt that I could do it. And one of the widows had come over very fashionably dressed in like leather pants and the high heeled boots with a chainsaw and instructions on how to use it. Well, I decided not to use the chainsaw because I wasn't totally sure I could do that safely. But you know, that's the (laughs) widows, right? Empowering each other. And so I did have a handsaw. So I sawed it, sawed it, sawed it. And yeah, finally it came down and it was so heavy. Honestly, I could have really got hurt. You know how heavy, like even a tree branch is? So heavy.
0: Yeah. I jumped out of the
1: way just in time. And yeah, that helped, I think, the kids because they weren't, they were skeptical I could actually take care of that.
0: Wow. Yeah, I feel like a chainsaw is one of those things you should not be reading instructions for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it should come with some required training instead of like a YouTube video. Huh. <laughs> oh my goodness. So how long did it take you to write this book? And I know you said you did it like in found time basically, but you know, what was it like going back and reliving all those emotions again?
1: Well, it took a few years to write and it was definitely cathartic. Like it mm-hmm. was incredibly emotional at times. And wow, I mean, I would just cry my eyes out sometimes, but it was a good feeling, really good. Would you want to write another book on any topic or? Maybe someday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was a really, it was one of those things that brought, you know, there was like a creative process, a narrative process, a storytelling process. It was definitely a lot of work though. And I I had a fantastic team um, set up by the publishers. So once the first draft is done, The book is only half done, actually, because they come back and like reorganize it or say, do this, do that, do that, do that, like total reorg. (laughs) And then that happens two or three times, actually. And then the editor or the, you know, will go through it with a finer tooth comb. And finally, we had this absolutely outstanding copy editor. That's the person who's just checking for grammar. And but that person went so far above and beyond and would say, well, this sentence makes no sense because a few paragraphs before you said this. So it's not just the writing itself but as you know you know it's kind of the last the polishing process took way longer than than I ever expected.
0: Wow. and your your publisher is Crown, right? Crown, right. Great. Wow. I mean not everybody has such a great experience with their editors and publishers and everything, so I'm glad that that worked so well. I mean a lot of people do, but
1: not not everybody. I see. Well, I think I was of the mindset that they know more, so I should just do whatever they say and I like I did push back on a few, there's a few specific sentences they really didn't like because they weren't literal. They were just sort of figurative. Mm-hmm. Like there's one where we're describing this incident where at one of our widows get togethers, one of them is telling us this crushing story that her husband who had died of cancer, like the day before he started chemo, she had found like in his pile of stuff, he had bought tickets to go to Paris. That like, was literally. such a sad part. Yeah. Airplane oh tickets gosh. and like hotel And he never told anyone because it was like a bet against cancer, you know? People do these defined things, like my own husband. He never cared about good clothes. His once and only suit was given to him by his father, who happened to be the same size and who had worn it, like, for a few decades. But for some reason, when my husband was terminally ill, he went out and bought a brand new suit. Like, does that make any sense? (laughs) Because it's, like, (laughs) defying against you know, that prediction of death. So she found all of this, literally, like, I think it was just a few days. So she found all this stuff. And the date on the ticket was like a few days after he had died. Oh and so, gosh. you know, we wrote this, when I wrote this part in the book, there's a I like, it's one of my favorite sentences in the book, because the kids were just playing and they didn't notice that we widows were telling the story and crying. And it, it ends the paragraph saying, well, it, it's something like, you know, Paris was in full flood. Like that means like we were crying so much about this trip to Paris and the editing team didn't want that sentence because like, it doesn't make sense really. Like we were crying, but we're not in Paris and there's no flood. Right, so right. It's just so poetic. Like I, so rarely did I really push back. So I think my experience was good because I mostly just did whatever they, they requested. But by the way, the widow in question later on in her life, she actually did manage to take her two kids to Paris and had a great time.
0: Oh, that's such a great sort of coda—is that the right word—to the story? That's amazing. I know your kids must be older by now. I mean, I know how old they were in the book, but what, like seventeen or something? Yes, that's or, right. Yeah, the
1: older boy is seventeen, and the younger one is fifteen. So, have they read your story? Have you shared it with them, or oh, how no, do you no. feel? No. How to, so, no? I actually ask them not to read the book until they are adults, like twenty-one, because. Mm-hmm it's pretty upsetting and kids actually are resilient, right? I mean, people have died, parents have died for millennia and kids get over it. And I I really believe having gone through this with not only my own kids, but watching my widow's friends' kids as well, that in order to be resilient, kids' brains are designed to forget. And so a lot of the details in the book, they, they won't remember and it might be upsetting for them. But a couple other things. Before I submitted like the book or I don't know at some stage I went over I told them everything that was in the book about them and in one case I I toned something down because the kid requested it it's the opening where he has the meltdown on the sledding hill he didn't he didn't want it to sound I don't know he thought it sounded worse than it actually was okay yeah I kind of went through just sort of as a courtesy because I didn't want them being embarrassed by anything that was in the book and then another thing was that one of them after I said look I I think you shouldn't read this till you're 21 because you know how kids push back like, if you say, yes. oh, you should read it, like, they'll never read it. If yes. you say, oh, don't read it, they'll want to read it. <laughs> he just said, well, mom, if everyone else in the world gets to read it, isn't that kind of weird that your own kids who are in the book aren't supposed to read it? <laughs> and I said, sure, okay, fine. Because we go by logic. So if my kids have a logical argument, like, I don't say, no, you can't do it because I said. I, I always respond to logic. So I'm like, you know, you could. Sure, I mean, I'm not going to prevent you from reading it. But I just want you to know that sometimes things aren't as upsetting to people if it's not about them personally. That's true. <laughs> what advice would you have for aspiring authors? I do have a piece of advice that someone gave me early on, which is for your story, you know, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, there has to be an arc to the story. Like this might sound obvious, but it's really harder to implement than it sounds. Like there has to be a start and an end, but also kind of a rise and a fall and then a rise. Like there has to be some kind of you know, like in a mystery novel, there's a plot and something happens and the characters are trying to solve the mystery. Well, they can't solve the mystery at the beginning where there's no book. Right. They have to solve it <laughs> towards the end, but not right at the end. And so it's the same thing. Whatever the story is in the narrative, there has to be an arc to it. Interesting.
0: Well, I actually, I one of the things I loved about your book is the way you use time and like how you went back and forth in time and how you structured each chapter. So I don't know. I think it, however it is you did it, it, it really worked well in propelling the narrative arc forward. <laughs>
1: Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on your on your call. Oh, I absolutely loved your book. And just sorry that I wasn't dressed. Like I got the time mixed up and I I just wasn't ready because I wanted to be able to say hi in person. And I wanted to say, I'm just so I know your mother-in-law died and it must have been like a really crazy few weeks and I'm sure it's tough. Oh, thank you. Well, honestly, your book really helped. It's one of the things that helped the most. So thank you.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Sugar Wish. Send a surprise sugar wish to somebody you love and check it out yourself, sugarwish.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.